can't tell if the chemistry is good by looking at it. It wasn't clear yesterday. For the last time, the saltwater pool is a chlorine pool. This is the Talking Pools podcast with pool pros from every region in the country. If it happens in a pool, you'll hear about it here. Everything from tips and hacks to the latest tricks and trends, breaking news. We lay it on the line. We tell it like it is because we think you deserve to know. Welcome to a special edition of the Talking Pools podcast with Rudy Stankowitz and guests. Today we will be speaking with leading swimming pool industry microbiologist, Dr. Roy Vohr and scientists Tom Quetchler and Jen Huang. We will be discussing the controversial subject of maximum cyanuric acid levels in swimming pools. CPO Thursdays will return next Thursday. Buckle your seatbelts and try to have an open mind. Disinfectant cyanurates and the and the CMAHC, but we also wanted to talk about again how this is going to impact us going forward, where it's going to impact us. I also wanted to see what we could do going forward to have more of a say in what happens in the industry as a whole, pool professionals, aquatics professionals, just simply because I, I don't think we have very good representation there now. So if everybody can go into this open-minded. So from there, Roy. Yeah, I'm Roy. Many, many of you know me. If you don't, I've been in the industry since 91. Uh, I've worked with the Bacquisil, Arch, DuPont, uh, recently BioLab, and, and now I'm out on my own, running my own little service business. I'm the germ guy. I mean, if you, you, you open your CPO manual, you see my name in the front of that. I wrote the RWI manual for uh, NSPF. Uh, so it's like probably heard more nasty stories about germs from pools from me than anybody else. So it's like, like 20% of my time for the last 30 years has been running pools and I've run them in like nine different states now. And, and right now, about half residential, half commercial, uh, sitting in my office right now. I'm just an old pool boy with a degree in microbiology. Tom, take it away. Okay. I've been 30 years in the industry as well. Um, research, technical service, um, run a lot of field trials with uh, chlorine and bromine biocides. Uh, so I, I've worked for industry, uh, chemical suppliers for, for most, most of that time, uh, Monsanto and Occidental Chemical. Uh, I currently work uh, as a consultant uh, for the isocyanurate industry ad hoc committee, which is a consortium of manufacturers. Uh, and I am a member of the, uh, the CMAC chlorine stabilizer ad hoc committee, which we'll talk about a lot in a minute. Ben? I want to add to that Tom's participation in that ad hoc committee is not a sponsored, is pro bono volunteer work that he does out of his passion. Um, I am I am a chemist. I have a, my bachelor's of science in chemistry from Truman State University. Um, I currently am a technical and regulatory consultant for the water treatment industry. I have um, more than 15 years of experience in biotechnology, academia, biopharmaceuticals, manufacturing, and immunology research. Um, and over five, about five years of that has been spent in the water treatment industry, including, um, you know, industrial water treatment, drinking water, pool water, um, and other sanitizer uses. 
Um, so I'm, I'm affiliated with or have been affiliated with at some point in time, Alpha Chi Sigma, which is Professional Chemistry Fraternity Association of Water Technologies, American Water Works Association, um, the PHTA RWQC I'm involved with. I'm not a member, but looking to become one. Um, and I've been involved with the CMAC Chlorine Stabilizer Ad Hoc Committee as well. Um, I am a scientist first and foremost. I am an independent consultant second. Um, and I also um, provide consulting services for the consortium of isocyanuric manufacturers. Okay, so like Rudy said, um, this, this meeting was very last minute for us as well. So we have thrown these slides together. So um, forgive us for a lack of a smoothness throughout, but um, we really wanted to open the conversation with you all and hear what you guys say. I feel that, you know, um, the, the voice of, you know, pool side professionals um, and operators is severely lacking in um, some of these groups that address codes for pools. And we really need your intel and your feedback and your voice. Um, so we're going to focus on two key pool codes. We're, well, we're going to mention two um, because they're sort of competing codes. Um, and we're going to focus on one just because this particular month is um, and week is very interesting for that code. So we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to Based some of uh, the information we want to share with you, we're going to look at outbreak data. We're going to talk about what the difference is between, you know, different types of free chlorine that are mentioned, total chlorine, free chlorine, um, what you measure as free chlorine versus what, what that's really telling us, uh, because that's really important to understanding proper sanitation. And we want to talk about current risk proposals that are out there um, for some of these codes. And then um, we're also going to talk about real world scenarios and data, and we really want to hear from you all. So please interrupt us with questions as you have them. Um, and let's, we'll get started. Um, so like I said, there's two codes of interest, um, that we are going to point out to you today. One is PHTA's ANSI standard 11. This code is driven predominantly by the PHTA recreational water quality committee. Um, Roy has served on that committee for a long time, um, and now he consults, um, serves as a consultant for that committee. Tom and I have been actively involved um, and participating, but not as members, um, as guests with that committee um, for the last year and a half or two years, I guess now. Um, it's probably more like two years, right, Tom? I guess he's muted. Almost two, almost two, yeah. Um, so, and they, there's also the standard 11 is also driven by recently added component structure to PHTA, which is the standard writing committees that they have for the various standards. Um, but a lot of the people that are serving on that committee are also RWQC members. Um, then there's the CDC's model aquatic health code. Um, if, if you haven't heard of that, this code is free. Um, it's accessible online. It is driven by the council for the model aquatic health code. Um, you can join, anybody can join and become a member of the CMAC. Um, and that membership is a three-year membership because the cycle of the MAC gets edited every three years. And we're going to talk about that. Both of these now have a, what's called a change request process and the ability for um, the public to um, 
provide feedback. There's mechanisms for that, but we're going to focus today on the Mac and the CMAC. So um, just want to add that the, the CMAC is a nonprofit organization. Um, the intent of it is to be the, be the ones that contribute to the code that is owned by the CDC um, to put together a science-based code um, and best practices tool for everybody to utilize. Um, it is very, very exhaustive code. I will say that compared to other pool codes that are out there. Um, for us, most of our focus is basically on operations and water quality. Um, for the purpose of this talk, that's, you know, we're going to focus on that and sanitization and disinfection, but there's a lot more involved in that code. Um, just in general, um, CMAC members, you, it's a very cheap membership. I want to say it's anywhere between like 90 and $200 per individual, not per company. Um, <clears throat> and they allow, being a member, you get to be involved. <clears throat> you can pro provide public comments that are taken into consideration um, on different change request proposals that have been made. And a couple of recent changes, and this is going to come up again later, <clears throat> from the last CMAC cycle till now, is that they've increased the vote. So the CMAC will, body will vote on different change requests that have been submitted. And the vote has to be 61% or higher in order to pass. And this was a change that was made out of um, necessity by the CDC. They decided that if there's any change requests that have been put forth that are very controversial and maybe not necessarily justified or clearly that's what should be happening or they don't have issues with being adopted, um, they were getting a vote that was below 61%. And so that's why that was changed from 51% to 61% as a minimum. It's important to note also that the vote from the CMAC body is weighted 50% public health officials and 50% industry. Since you guys are um, a new category, thank you, Rudy, who has worked with the um, CMAC board to get a category added to you guys for you all um, for membership. There, what is it called, Rudy? Is it the pool service professionals? I believe it's aquatics uh, service professionals. That's thank you. The chunk that we were able to get, but we do have we do have our own niche now, so we are in there. I think you're in your own niche. However, I think you would get lumped in with the 50% industry vote weight. Um, we are. We're, in, we're included in the aquatic sector. The other half would be the health department. So we are definitely on the aquatic side. Okay. So this is a health-based code. Like I said, it's owned by the CDC and that is partially why it's, um, it's divided that way. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, it'll be that way forever. And I, I have heard from various folks that 50-50 public health and industry split may not make sense. And if you guys feel, you know, differently, you know, you should be um, sharing that and communicating that because it's important, you know, and, and, and they do want to hear from us and all of you. So that is, that is the purpose of the Council for the Model Public Health Code. Um, so some of these changes, I'll just tell you that Tom and Roy and I were all personally involved in the conversations that led to 
multiple com public comment periods when there was previously only one that led to a minimum passing vote of 61%. Um, those are changes since the last CMAQ cycle. And they were, they were spurred by some change requests um, that were very controversial, that there was extra conversation that went on and extra meetings that happened. We were involved. And so some changes can be made if you have a voice. I just wanna emphasize that. Um, Present changes to the, the CDC um, are necessary to remain current with the latest science. So the CMAC tries to coordinate that and prioritizes, you know, change requests that are based on um, science and data and, and preferably peer-reviewed publications and best practices. Um, and then this is a, just a, just a, just a code. So it has to be adopted by your local authority having jurisdiction. Um, and by states and different um, inspectors. Okay, so um, I brought CMAC, um, and I'm now I'm going to talk about they have they also have in the CMAC special ad hoc committees. Um, one of those is a chlorine stabilizer ad hoc committee. And it's the only one I'm going to talk about today, but there are different ones out there. Um, it was originally organized by Michael Beach of the CDC and previous CMAC director Doug Sackett in late 2005, early 2006. And it was the goal was to have a group of experts come together to analyze existing data on cyanuric acid and make different recommendations for the code. Um, Jen, Jen yeah. this 2016, not 2006. Oh, I'm sorry. 2016. I apologize. Um, late 2015, early 2016. That's a typo. Um, and the original members um, were, like I said, handpicked by Michael and Doug, um, and they were designed that, that was des by design to provide the right balance of expertise and balance in terms of interest and, um, you know, favors in terms of you know potential bias on these issues. So those members include Dr. Ellen Meyer of um, now Segura, formerly Archlanza in Innovative Water Care, Sam, Dr. Sam Pickens, who is retired from Axial Westlake, um, Tom, one of our speakers today, Dr. Tom Keekler, he is retired from Monsanto Oxychem. At the time, he was still working for Oxy with intent to entire, uh, retire. Again, he is a volunteer on this committee, and he's not a sponsored member for the work that he does. Um, Dr. Roy Vore was um, previously Biolab and also a previous member of this committee. Richard Falk, um, he often notes himself as a private citizen, uh, but he has other affiliations for other companies that are listed there. And then Dr. Chip Blatchley of uh, Purdue University, and he is the one that was assigned to be the chair by Michael for this ad hoc committee. Um, some changes that have been made since the original membership. So that's, those are the original members. Um, Dr. Laura Seps um, of University of Wisconsin, who has um, some healthcare or health um, official background. Um, she joined in uh, fall of 2016. Um, Roy stopped participating and officially left um, in late summer 2018. And I um, joined and sort of actively participated um, over the last year and I'm no longer actively participating and I'll get back to that 
in a little bit, but that's mostly because of all the controversy that's gone on. So, okay, Roy, take it over. Okay, many of you have seen this slide before. This is based upon CDC information about what kind of germs we're actually seeing in outbreaks in public pools. And so we're talking about public pools because there's almost no data on uh, residential pools. But in about 89% of the people that get sick in public pools, it's crypto. And we all know that you cannot control crypto with chlorine. But that wedge up there at the top are the other ones that are considered readily controllable by free chlorine if there is more than one ppm uh, measured by a test kit. You know, and they include Pseudomonas, Legionella, E. coli, Shigella, norovirus, and Giardia. So this is the numbers that we're facing, and, and the, the numbers haven't changed that much for the last uh, 15 years. Uh, there is additional information that's come out since then, but it is not significantly different than this. Next slide, Jim. All right. A lot of the conversation over the last three years with the ad hoc committee uh, and it, it came down to talking about Giardia. So what do we know about Giardia in swimming pool? Well, the last data that we have from the United States is the summary that came out from the years 2011, 2012. And probably the data is a, a little bit older than we like, but if you stop and you think about it, since then the CDC has been involved in Ebola and now they're involved in uh, uh, COVID-19. So it's like, so the data is uh, not exactly as current as we would like, but it's still probably exactly the same trend. So if we look at what data we have, there's about 32,000 cases of reported Giardia in the United States. Less than seven hundredths of 1% is from treated swimming pools. Turns out those 21 cases were all from the exact same pool. And so there has never been a documented case of Giardia, according to the CDC data, when there was at least one ppm of chlorine as measured by DPD in the pool. So what do we have on Giardia in pools? Well, we do not know how much Giardia there is in a pool. We do not know how fast Giardia is killed in a swimming pool. And we'll get into this in a minute, but there's no real data on kill rates of free chlorine with or without cyanuric acid. There is some data that's privately held by one of the manufacturers in here, but this is the entire data set that we have available today that is solid and defensible on Giardia. Are you guys comfortable making decisions on that kind of data? That's really the question I want you to think about. I mean, we, one outbreak, 21 cases, and that's the best data that we've got. And the entire concept that, of changing cyanuric acid relies on a data set like this. Okay, next slide. Just want to point out that the kill rates that we do have on Giardia are for drinking water and not pools, and that's all we have. Yep. That last. yep. Next slide, Jim. Okay. Uh, after 
you heard Jim talk about the ad hoc committee. Well, after five years of digging and, you know, I mean, you saw all the academic credentials on there. Uh, you know, everybody on that original committee, except for one, had a Ph.D. We know how to dig for data if it exists. Couldn't find the data on GRDN pools. And so the, you know, the group could not come up with a reasonable worst case scenario that everybody could agree on. And so to develop this model that you've heard about, you took one study and multiplied it by another study and multiplied it by another study, but that also multiplies the errors. And so it came up with a model. And when you actually looked at it and you take this mathematical model and you put in there, and if you plug in the current parameters that are in the model aquatic health code, that is 90 ppm of cyanuric acid, 2 ppm free chlorine as measured by DPD, the risk from Giardia is not significant. That's where the original, you always heard this talk about all these ratios and everything. That's where the 45 to 1 comes in. So the the model that everybody talks about says, if you do it the way you're doing right now, with the limited data we've got, it's not an issue. But if you go back and you say, well, we could use one bather per 15 square feet instead of one per 20 square feet, and we could turn the filter off, and we could keep the pool occupied at one bather per 15 square feet, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, 365 or 66 days per year, then there is a slight change in the risk. And if you put those assumptions in there, you calculate how much cyanuric acid you have in there, then you have to lower the ratio to 20 to 1. My argument with this is there is not a pool in the world that is occupied at 100% capacity, 365 days a year. And if any of us is running a pool that's that crowded at one bather per 15 square feet with the filter turned off, the health department's going to close us down anyway. It's illegal to run a pool that way. And so I, you know, why I'm pissed off about the whole thing. And I'll be honest, I'm pissed about this. It's to get to that number, you are running illegal and illogical conditions. It doesn't make sense. I've been looking at the microbiology for 25 years. This is not the biggest threat, but the model says it's the biggest threat. The two threats are crypto and not keeping one ppm of free chlorine in the uh, in the water. That's what the data says. The model is not reflective of what I see in the real world. That's my background. Jen or Tom, you're up. That's me. Uh, one thing the MAC is 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 lacking in, and and the ad hoc committee has. Uh, introduce a change request for is, is properly defining uh, some of the terms around measuring chlorine. Um, 
And, and so the MAC defines free available chlorine uh, or FAC as the sum of HOCl and OCl minus. And, and that's fine and dandy. Or is, is properly defining. But then they go and uh, use that everywhere in the MAC as though that's the number that you measure, which is incorrect. Uh, so the ad hoc committee is introducing this term DPDFC uh, to find the available chlorine that you measure with a test kit as free chlorine, you know, a test kit based on DPDF, D, DPD. Uh, and this is then the, the free available chlorine, HOCl and OCl minus, plus the available chlorine that's bound to the cyanuric acid ring. And if you're looking at an outdoor pool that's stabilized, uh, running one, two, three parts per million available chlorine and 20 to 50 or 90 parts per million cyanuric acid, only a small fraction of the DPDFC that you measure is really FAC. And so those are two very different uh, values. And the MAC just completely seems to equate the two. So uh, the MAC really needs to be changed uh, to reflect that. The MAC also didn't define total chlorine and, and combined chlorine uh, adequately, and, and we introduced uh, definitions for those. You know what those things are. Next slide. I just want to add that from this point on, you're going to hear us reference DPDFC or measured free chlorine. <clears throat> so from this point forward. Okay. Is, is there any questions on that, what that term means? That's, that's the reading that you actually get from your test kit. Uh, we also define cyanurate-bound chlorine as the available chlorine, which is bound to the cyanurate ring. That actually exists in solution as several different compounds, uh, which are in rapid equilibrium. And, and so the chlorine-bound, cyanurate-bound chlorine actually dissociates to release HOCl when some free chlorine is depleted. Uh, by reaction with demand. So I, I see the cyanurate bound chlorine as a reserve of chlorine, which allows you to release the free chlorine when it's needed. So you, you know, you've seen the equilibrium with, with hypochlorous acid. Uh, the hypochlorite ion is in uh, rapid equilibrium and, and with HOCl. And HOCl is your active biocidal agent, so that's that, that's the thing that really does your kill. Uh, the same in the same way, the the cyanurate bound chlorine uh, is in rapid equilibrium with HOCl uh, and can rapidly dissociate uh, in a matter of seconds uh, when more HOCl is needed. Now there are several, like I said, there's several different compounds in solution, and it, takes several different equilibrium constants to uh, determine uh, actually what's in solution to characterize that equilibria. Uh, but those determine what the concentration is for all the different compounds in solution, including what the concentration of HOCl is. Uh, O'Brien uh, and coworkers measured that in 1974. Uh, Waman and Alexander came in a couple of years ago and, and published the temperature dependence 
uh, for two of the equilibrium constants that are important. So uh, we now have some idea of how those uh, equilibrium constants vary with temperature. Next. Roy, you're up. Well, before we do that, is, I've been seeing it flash up on my screen that we've got chats. Rudy, are we are we not giving people the opportunity to ask questions here? No, I think they're just being very polite at this time and not <laughs> wanting to interrupt. So um, I don't know who any of these people are. <laughs> <laughs> please, please interrupt us. We don't want to be blowing through information with you all and you guys feel like we're just talking at you. We don't want any of that. We want to hear um, that we're making the information um, you know, relatable to you all and relevant. So if you guys have questions, we, we definitely want to hear it. Feel free to please interject. It's not a formal, this is not a formal event. Okay, well, that's the whole, that's the whole point of it. That's the idea behind it. The goal in getting everybody together and getting this group together. And, um, luckily these folks, um, having some availability for us is to, um, get your feedback really. Um, you know, we can only take it so far without information from the field. And all of you have such a tremendous wealth of knowledge, whether you're watching, uh, whether you're, you know, attending right here, you're going to watch the video later, or you're checking us out on Facebook as we roll along. You all have a tremendous wealth of knowledge, and that's extremely valuable to um, what we're working on. And also with that, as I stated at the beginning, we want to create more involvement in this as well. Um, Tom mentioned an area where the CMAC or the model aquatic health code was lacking. I can tell you another area where it's lacking is, um, in, is involvement from the pool industry sector. Um, I know aquatics um, is a little bit better, um, but as far as the pool industry goes, uh, we don't have a great presence there, but we could. Um, so please definitely chime in, ask questions, and I'll let uh, Jen get back to it. Just to clarify something Rudy said, there is a good pool industry presence on the CMAC, but it's lacking in pool service professionals. That's where we're really lacking. So there's, there's other um, involvement from other sectors of the pool industry, like manufacturers and builders, that sort of thing. But we, but we need to hear from pool service professionals. So we're missing information from the field, which is That's where, right. Which is where the greatest intel comes from, the front and, line, and, and that's you guys. At one point there, Rudy. I mean, if you, I sat in on most of the TRC uh, discussions as they evaluated the change requests, and you could you could see that in a lot of the discussions the you know some many of the trc members understood certain things about pools and and the the discussion was intelligent and then they got into other areas where it was clear they just didn't know what they were talking about and and a couple of experienced pool operators would have helped that discussion a lot <laughs> so just to clarify for everybody what tom's talking about the trc is what is called the technical review committee these are people that have been selected to review all of the change requests that have been submitted for the Model Aquatic Health Code in any given cycle. Um, and they change per cycle. They're not always the same people, um, but they have a huge influence on how we see the CMAC people vote 
Um, so the technical review committee will are supposedly have the resources to review change requests, and then they provide a recommendation on what they're telling Council for a Model Aquatic Health Code members how to vote. And we usually see the vote results are usually very similar to those TRC recommendations. That's what Tom's talking about. Yep. Okay, Roy, take it away. Okay, so what do we know about kill data on Giardia? Because that's the one that keeps popping out on, on you know, after five years of work. Well, uh, the only data that publicly available was done by the U.S. EPA Water Division out of Cincinnati, and they developed what's called a CT table on there. It was done in drinking water, did not contain cyanuric acid, and they do it over a range of temperatures in there. And so the value that, that we normally use in pools is that the CT value for Giardia, and that gives you a 99.9% .9 kill. So it's uh, one ppm of chlorine will kill 99.9% uh, .9 of the Giardia in 45 minutes. So you've been through a CPO course. If you increase it to three ppm, then your kill rate's 15 minutes. If you increase it to 10 ppm, it's in 4.5 minutes. So this was the data that was then used and incorporated back into the mathematical model that came out of it. Like we want to point out, it's drinking water, not pool water, and there is not data from the EPA that involves cyanuric acid. So it is an estimated calculation at best. And as a microbiologist, uh, I probably run as many kill studies in the lab as anybody alive today on swimming pools. And I can tell you kill data in the lab is kind of like a, a two-year-old with a bad attitude. It works some days and some days you're in for a screaming fit. I'm not very satisfied with relying upon estimated data if we're making uh, serious changes. So this is another reason why I'm not very happy with this whole approach right now. Yeah. And Roy, I'm not real happy with the CT tables. I, I don't think they took care of the pH effect yeah. very well at yeah. all. I, I, I think EPA's uh, treatment of the data was was flawed too. <laughs> yeah. So it's like you got no data in one area and you got marginal or poor data in another one. And you're putting mathematical model on it and you're trying to predict what your two-year-old is going to do on a bad day. That's where we are. I just want to add to that, too, that um, Vince Hill gave a talk this past week at the World Aquatic Health Conference. And one of the things that he reviewed was some of the models that have been developed, including the one that we are um, discussing here. And, you know, models are only as good as the amount of data that we have to put into them. And they are a good tool, but they are certainly not a replacement for additional research. And um, they, like I said, they're only as good as the, as the data that we have by which, you know, we, we make them and design them by. So, um, you know, like I said, the model is a good tool. It's a good resource. It helps give us an idea, but it is an estimate. And we will never, no matter how much data we have, we will never, ever be able to have no uncertainty or zero um, uncertainty in any kind of estimation. That's why it's an estimate. Um, 
but there is a large amount of uncertainty, which is the point that we are making when we talk about Giardia kill data, because all these proposals are being predominantly based on Giardia, where we are severely lacking data. And we have um, Marty Kelly right now stating that the CT tables do not account for pH or the effect of cyanuric or percent of cyanuric acid. Um, if anybody wants to address that or not, we can just agree. <laughs> well, the, the CT tables uh, that EPA publishes uh, cover a range of pHs and temperatures. Uh, the temperature range is shown there, um, 33 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. They don't go any higher temperatures than that. They do cover a range of pH. Um, and those are in the tables. And when you actually look, it's not exactly certain how many of those were actually solid experiments versus estimated values. Because well, the, some of the tables. Yeah, the entire the entire set of CT tables is is basically EPA's fit to a bunch of literature data. Uh, it, it it it's really their mathematical fit to a bunch of data that they put together. What you're really saying is we've got a mathematically modeled table that now we're sticking in another mathematical formula. So now we're multiplying the errors every time we get in another formula. Good question, Marty. And then we're using that to justify the need to reduce risk. Just thought I'd add that. Okay, are we ready to move on? My screen's blinking with another comment, Rudy. Is that for us? Uh, that's Craig saying, good point, Roy. <laughs> okay. So I'll keep you posted as they come up. If um, you'd all like kudos as we go along, I'll let you know when those pop up as well. <laughs> okay. So part of the recent, I guess, um, spur in, in sort of reigniting the controversy with respect to cyanuric acid has been this model that we've been talking to you about, um, which, like we said, is based off of Giardia. Um, and there has been a lot of risk reduction proposals that have been, have been made um, based on this. Um, a lot of misinterpreting in the paper as well, but I'm going to focus on the original proposal because these are your experts in pool industry. And I know everybody in the pool industry thinks of themselves as an expert, but the CMAC chlorine stabilizer ad hoc committee members are very influential. Um, based on this, Rudy, is everything under control? I just heard my voice talking to myself. You're fine. Okay, great. Don't, we'll, uh, we'll get you psychiatric help if necessary. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so um, the original proposal, which was published in the paper, um, was based on trying to develop uh, a set of assumptions or worst case of worst case scenarios to the point where, in our opinion, the worst case of the worst case of the worst case is no longer um, realistic or reasonable. Um, and here are some of the worst case assumptions that were made. Um, it was based on a pool depth of only three feet, shallow pool. Um, the ingestion rate and the frequency and the exposure was based off of children. Um, we obviously would assume children are probably ingesting more pool water 
um, than most adults, I would say. Um, there was a couple set of equilibrium constants um, that there are available. At the time, we only had O'Brien's. Um, that's what was chosen for the paper. They are different, um, and that needs to be addressed because they shouldn't be different. Um, in addition to that, um, a couple other assumptions that were made, as Roy mentioned, was the 15 square feet high bather load, which I will point out is higher than what is allowed for what's called flat water in pools um, per the current model aquatic health code requirement. Um, in addition, they also assumed no pool filtration. Um, I can't imagine a pool that doesn't have a filter and I can't imagine why you would have that filter turned off if you're running the pool. Um, the MAC does require pool filtration and does require a minimum amount of filtration. Um, in addition to that, the original proposal um, had the pool being open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, a pool that never ever closes. There is no such pool. And this led to saying that, oh, we estimate our risk means we need to not exceed an operational ratio of CYA to DPDFC of 20 to one. Another aspect of this, which we're gonna talk some more about too, is the Giardia introduction rate parameters. Part of the reason why they have some error is they are based off of a fecal matter shedding rate from E. coli data, because we don't have any for Giardia. In addition to that, that introduction rate of Giardia is um, utilizes how much Giardia concentration there is in that fecal matter, which we're going to talk about that because that's very vague. We'll talk about that coming up. Really quick, Jen, um, yes. I have uh, coming from the Facebook side, we have uh, Wayne Ivysich is now um, watching from Facebook. He says a pool. With Welcome, no, Wayne. He says a pool with no filter is a pond. Uh, yes. Rob, Rob Matthews wants to know he's um, asking selected by who and what qualifications do they have so i'm assuming he's referring to the ad hoc um uh committee uh patricia carr says we're here and josh mall says that he's here and watching but i did not mention my book yet and i should do that that i have a book and that everybody should read it pretty much i mean i ad-libbed some of it but he said i should mention it so there you go Okay, so to, I, I can't remember now who asked which question, but uh, yes, Wayne, I agree with you. And uh, part of the reason why there was no filtration um, done for that proposal is because they assumed that the effects of minimum filtration would be negligible at best. And that's not really the whole story. I don't think there was enough digging done on that. Um, with regards to the members of the Chlorine Stabilizer Ad Hoc Committee, for the CMAC, um, they were handpicked. Um, I mentioned earlier, they were handpicked by Michael Beach of the CDC and Doug Sackett, which is the formal director, former director of the CMAC. Um, and that was basically to have a balance and expertise and opinion, honestly, in terms of, you know, uh, biased experience um, based on background of, you know, a pro CYA versus an anti CYA um, perspective. Um, but also, like I said, expertise was really um, part of that conversation. And then consider um, some parties that were considered to be neutral as well. So that was the membership composition. And you will hear me call them the experts because I sometimes get tired of saying the CMAC chlorine stabilizer ad hoc committee members because it's a mouthful. So um, just know when I say that, that's what I'm talking about. I know that we are all in a lot of ways experts 
but that's what I mean. And not just for, just for the purpose of being short. Um, okay. So I mentioned to you all that the original proposal had those unreasonable assumptions. Um, and if you make some adjustments, again, this is a model, which is an estimate, which is based off of thinking that Giardia is the highest risk pathogen we have that's chlorine sensitive in pools. Um, but all those assumptions being had, if we modify the bather load to be at least consistent with the maximum bather load allowed per the current MAC that's appropriate for this model, you'd be looking at 20 square feet per bather instead of 15. If you modify your pool to actually have your filter on, um, we estimate that you will have a very, very ultra conservative estimate of 30% Giardia cysts being removed per pass with a six hour turnover, which is your maximum allowable. Um, and that is based off of, cause we've gotten some criticism from that minimum pool filtration uh, cyst removal adjustment. That is based off of uh, filtration removal that James Ambergy has done of cryptosporidium cysts, showing an average of 25% um, cryptosporidium oocysts being removed uh, by a slow, or sorry, a fast sand, fast sand pool filter, um, and which is the least efficient pool filter that is out there. And Giardia cysts are about twice the size. Um, of a cryptosporidium cyst, you would pretty be pretty safe assuming that you are removing substantially more Giardia cysts per pass than you are cryptosporidium cysts. Um, and there is some Giardia, um, you know, filtration removal data, but that's associated with drinking water. Did I get that right, Tom? Yes, there is some data on drinking water filters, but drinking water filters are very different from a typical sand filter on a pool. Yeah. Okay. But yes, that, that data does show better removal of Giardia. So another adjustment that we made, and this was not part of the model originally when the paper was published, is we accounted to say the pool does close. It's not open 24 hours. So we adjusted it to say, okay, fine, it can be open every day, but it's going to close every night. So we um, did hours of operation at 12 hours per day, and that accounts for diurnal recovery that you see. Um, and we assumed that, you know, in that diurnal recovery assumption, we utilize the worst time of day um, as part of the calculation in the model um, for potential pathogen concentration, the last two hours that the pool is open per day in any given day. And with these modifications, that, uh, that led to a new estimate in risk associated with a maximum operational ratio of 45 to one rather than 20 to one. So that's a huge difference. And those were the, these were the only changes we made for that. So we didn't account for, like I mentioned in the previous slide, the issues that I alluded to with Giardia introduction rate, um, which has a big impact on estimating your risk of infection. There is a very high amount of uncertainty. It's, it's significant. Um, which is basically an error associated with the estimate. There is a factor of about plus or minus 5.85 times. Um, and that was based on a statistical log normality done by the lead author on that, Richard Falk. Um, this estimate is probably due to the fecal shedding rate, which I mentioned is based off of E. coli data, not Giardia data. Um, also, 
the model, the Giardia concentration in fecal matter does not account for what percent of that Giardia um, in the fecal matter is viable versus what is not. And then even from what percent of Giardia is viable does not mean that it will result in infectivity. So percent infectivity is another area where data is lacking. So these lead to overestimates, um, potentially overestimates of, of GRD introduction rate in the model. Let's stop right there and look at that error factor. All right. Everybody out here has got a test kit and everybody out here runs calcium. Here's the math. If you run your test kit and you get 260 ppm on your test kit, that error factor means your, your test kit could give you a reading as 44 or a reading of 1,521 ppm of calcium. So that error factor that they're using to change the standard says your pool is somewhere between 44 ppm of calcium and 1,521 ppm of calcium. That's the kind of variability in the numbers that we're talking about here. I have, really? Really? I have Rob Matthews on Facebook wanting to know um, why there are so many assumptions being used and why not just use scientific fact. Great question. <laughs> Great question. Because nobody has gone out and done the basic research we don't know how much Giardia is in a swimming pool. So we had to take three different studies that were totally unrelated that had a whole bunch of air in them, variability, that's a better terminology, and multiply them together. And that multiplies your air. And then we had to make assumptions on cyanuric acid. We had to make assumptions on temperature. What are the first three letters in the word assumption? <laughs> That's where we are. Yeah. I mean, Roy, you love being a free agent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and be happy if your reading is somewhere between 44 and 1,521. That's the numbers you're dealing with, guys. I mean, we we tried to do as good of a job as we could to get data out of the literature and, and use data in the model that, that was, was reasonable. But particularly, Roy, on the Giardia data, that isn't so... You know, some of that is error in, in yeah. the measurements, but a lot of this is just variability from person to person, too. It, uh, uh, we're looking at a person that's infected getting into the pool. Well, it looks like we have Wendy Purser um, suggesting that we draw our samples from the spas on cruise ships before they're drained. <laughs> Except, Wendy... <laughs> Giardia is not a pathogen in spots. There are no fecal-borne pathogen outbreaks in spots, even on cruise ships. Well, she did give another example, but she mentioned a brand, so I'm leaving it out. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Roy, I'm, am, am I right? As, as when a person's infected, as they get through their disease... They're shedding different amounts of, of right. Giardia day to day, too. And so there's there's just so a, there's a very small amount of data. And when you're taking a small amount of data, there's a very large variability into it. And a lot of the data is not directly applicable. 
And so one of the slides we're going to get to in a couple of minutes is if you want to do this kind of, you know, analysis, you have to do a serious, 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 big study. Yep. And nobody's done it. And so we don't know. I mean, we do not know how much Giardia is in a swimming pool today with or without cyanuric acid. Yep. But the only data that we've got is the outbreak data. And the outbreak data says it doesn't happen. Yep. But it may be there. It may be at such a small level that it's not significant. So we're trying to match up 70 years of feeding studies, but none back in the 1950s on prisoners. That's how they calculated how much Giardia people uh, required to get and trying to match it up to the way we run pools today. And there's a lot of holes in our data and you're seeing why I'm very frustrated because it's like you, it's the numbers just aren't there. Can't do it guys. Just can't do it. Oh, all these are really good points. I'm going to keep us moving along. We're going to run out of time and I really want to hear from you all. So um, I just want to just kind of, back us up a little bit, a few feet higher, and say that this initial proposal is really what spurred and reignited and then sort of sent the message that's now the perception of many now, very, very wide perception, that we need to reduce risk because they now think um, there's a problem with risk of infection, particularly as it pertains to Giardia, but just in general now that we need to reduce risk. So the 20 to 1 ratio that was proposed that was based on these, um, you know, unreasonable assumptions that we've now reviewed and the the factor error that I said of 5.85x plus or minus was not done at the time. But they did know they did do a sensitivity analysis and they did assess that, you know, any assumption that you change in the model, any input parameter that you modify can shift the curve of risk estimation and therefore the recommended ratio around. Um, and they did know that and they knew that there was a high uncertainty, but yet these risk reduction proposals are still being made and trying, they're attempting to justify at the cost and impact to you all. So, all right, Roy, take it and take it fast. Okay. All right. You're on the, you all run pools. We run pools. Every bit of chlorine out there has got its good aspects and its bad aspects on there. And it's like, you have to know what you're using at the right time. You work with it. You manage it. After five years, this select at a committee uh, handpicked by CDC and CMAC in there couldn't come up with definitive information on Giardia. And so you're seeing the frustration. What we need is real world data and the CDC, the only data that we've got does not show Giardia to be an issue. 21 cases in the one period on there. That's the total number of cases. All right. To show a problem with Giardia, the model has to use illegal conditions that would immediately get the pool closed by the Department of Health and run a pool 24-7, 365. It makes more sense just to slow the whole thing down, go out and do what we call science, 
do actual studies in the lab to find out what the kill rates really are, and then go out to pools and collect water samples. That's the logical approach we need to be doing, not running off on some mathematical model that has got an ear that's unbelievably big. All right. Still you, Roy. All right. Measure the giardia in the pool. Today, we've only got to guess. Resolve the discrepancy in the equilibrium models because it's like the science shouldn't be there. And these mathematical equilibrium models, this is chemistry. This is, biology is all over the map. Chemistry should be pretty clear cut. And which one of these two mathematical equilibrium you pick makes a big difference. We've got to resolve that mathematically. While we're doing these pool studies, we need to look at lazy rivers versus wave pools versus hotel pools, hotel pools on a Saturday night versus a Monday morning in there. So we need to do, get data. Particularly as it relates to the impact of bather load when we're looking at those different types right. of venues. That is a right. huge impact on, um, you know, risk. And, you know, originally we started talking about only E. coli and enterococcus in, in the 1960s. Now we talk about a whole bunch of other organisms in here. We don't have much data on these other organisms. Maybe we need to do some basic research on that. And once we've got the data, then we sit down, do the whole thing again and say, now we've got a mathematical model. Now we could actually put numbers in and come up with a good estimation. Because in science, that's what you do. You come out with a hypothesis. That's what this model is. It's a hypothesis. You go out to the field, you collect the data, you compare it back. Did the model predict what it said it was? If it does, you keep the model. If it doesn't, you change it. That's what you do in science. You don't run off and just launch something because you've got some idea on paper. And that's what's being asked to done right now. That's what they're trying to do at Mac is just launch this idea with no science behind it. I think the next one's you, Jen. Okay. Before we move on from this slide, I'm just going to add, this is going to come up here in a minute, but um, most of the focus so far has been given to a max operational ratio that is for routine operation. Um, you know, what you would set your limits at, if you will. But then there's a different section in the Model Aquatic Health Code that talks about um, what warrants an imminent health hazard um, that would result in either immediate correction or closure of the pool. Um, and there are currently no, like, criteria um, requirements that speak to efficacy for imminent health hazard or the closure or immediate correction section. And we need to look at minimum disinfection levels as a ratio for that and, and determine where to go from there because we don't have any good science to guide us right now for that criteria as well. Okay, so I'm just gonna preface saying, I, I'm throwing up a big table at you guys, I'm sorry. Um, we're, just gonna, we're just gonna try and get through it together. These are the issues we wanted to make sure you had this information um, 
for, you know, the understanding the different proposals that have been thrown out there that could impact you, particularly as it pertains to cyanurates. And I know this is a lot. And actually, there's three slides. This is only the first one. Um, so, like I said, when I talk about the experts, I'm referring to the chlorine, CMAC chlorine stabilizer ad hoc committee members. Um, we have over on the left our vote recommendation. Um, the second column was added for Roy's benefit, which I'm going to get to in the moment. Each change request that has been submitted to the MAC has a change request number. Um, the, those numbers correspond to what area of the code that it is a change, change request for. Um, I also have on there what says current proposal, and I put current proposal because some of these change requests have been changed. And the proposal that you might see on the CMAC website might not be reflective of what you see written here in my table exactly. Um, this has to do with how you find the information in the CMAC website. So I wanted to make sure that I, I differentiated between current, what's current um, and then in the next column, noting for you guys certain change requests that have been revised um, that might not be reflective in the description on the CMAC website. The only way to look at these revisions is to go into the technical review committee's evaluation form and you can find out what you're voting on. So if you vote on basically the description itself um, and you don't click into it, you might think you're voting on one thing and you're actually voting on another because um, that revision is what you're voting on. So um, the next column is talking about whether the experts agree on a particular item. And then the TRC recommendation for how they recommend CMAC members vote based on their evaluation. And the rationale that's being utilized, just kind of a quick summary or my paraphrasing of the rationale for any given current proposal, whether or not the proposal has additional cost or impact to pool op operations um, for justifying a risk reduction based on large uncertainty. Um, and I feel like these are areas to highlight for you for consideration in your vote. And then there's an additional comment section. So we're just gonna quickly go through them. And I just wanna preface by saying Ellen Meyer did an hour and 10 minute presentation on most, if not all of these change requests. Um, and I'm going to try and do it in like hopefully five minutes. So <laughs> bear with me here. Um, so before we get started, I just want to point out that you should pay attention to column number two, which is on each one of the following three slides. Um, Roy has something he wants to point out to you about that. What I'm going to say on that is when you look at the uh, change requests that are put in by Segura, they're all over the map. I mean, the ratios are different. The limits are different. Is this a scientific proposal they're putting out here? Or are they just throwing out ideas to confuse the issue and, you know, figure out what they can get? I mean, it's like they're, the ideas are vastly conflicting with each other, but they've all got their company name on them. What the hell is going on? You figure that one out. I'll just say this, that I the, that column notes not only just ones that various employees of Segura have submitted but also ones where they are um, through Ellen Meyer. She is a member of the CMAC Chlorine Stabilizer Ad Hoc Committee. So that means that Segura is involved in that CR. 
So I, so I just kind of did that because it's important to note that because in some scenarios, because of Ellen's involvement in that group, she is supporting a change request that might be conflicting with another change request that she has submitted as an individual. So just want to point that out. Um, so we do recommend adopting um, some of these changes. Um, the first one is about the definitions, which, which we've already reviewed. The next two are about um, increasing the testing frequency of cyanuric acid concentration in pools if you utilize stabilized chlorine. Um, one proposal was to do it every single day. The other proposal was to do it once a week. That once a week proposal was made by the committee um, and they are in agreement on that. Um, then there is the secondary disinfection systems being required for all aquatic venues and not just high risk venues. This was submitted by Roy himself. I think this is an important piece, although it does have uh, a cost impact to you all. Um, the definition for agitated water is important because it is inconsistent and it impacts how people are interpreting bather load in the MAC. So we, Tom submitted that one. The change request for a minimum disinfection residual of one part per million DPDFC as opposed to one part per million FAC. And for that one part per million DPDFC to be the same regardless of cyanuric acid concentration. This is important because you can adopt this if you're going to adopt a max operational ratio to align the concept, you wouldn't necessarily need to have a minimum of two parts per million measured free chlorine with one part per million cyanuric acid. So the, the, this is, that was where this change came from. Um, there is a max operational, several max operational ratios that have been proposed. I'm going to start at the bottom of the page. Um, bottom of the page is a max ratio of two and a half to one cyanuric acid to DPDFC. This was put in by John Kelly. It's based on a 0.32 part per million hypochlorous acid concentration. Uh, this is ridiculously high. We don't recommend that one. Ellen Meyer submitted a 15 to one max operational ratio based on the her arbitrary assignment of one part per million monochloramine efficacy equivalents. Um, the next, I'm going to skip kind of to the middle where you see the no in the middle of the page on the left. Um, the CYA group, the experts submitted an original, well, some of them submitted an original 20 to one that has now been revised to a max operational ratio of 30 to one. So you'd be voting on a 30 to one. And we do not recommend that because that is, again, a risk reduction proposal. All of the ones I've said for max operational ratios are risk reduction proposals that are based on a huge amount of uncertainty, insufficient data, um, large amount of error. And that would be fine if it didn't have a impact on pool operation and cost. So if there was no trade-off, then sure. If, it, if, there's, if we can reduce risk and make our pools healthier with no negative impact, let's do it. That makes sense. But they all have negative impact and the uncertainty is just significant. So the science is insufficient to back that up. Um, we need to reduce the error. Another CR right below that is the max operational 50 to 1. That was submitted on behalf of some members of the Chlorine Stabilizer Ad Hoc Committee. Um, at that time, that referred to Tom, Roy, and myself. 
um, for a max ratio of 50 to 1. This 50 to 1 is based off of the previous MAC addition limit of 100 parts per million for cyanuric acid, which was reduced to 90 based off of the inability for you all to perform um, dilutions, which we all know is kind of bogus. So that's where the 50 to 1 came from. It came from equating the previous MAC um, limits of two parts per million DPDFC and 100 parts per million of cyanuric acid. This is basically the same risk that we currently have of 45 to 1. So we're basically saying we don't need to reduce risk. And our previous limits were fine. And that's where the ratio is. That is the max operational ratio that we are recommending to you. Um, so, okay, what did I leave out? The next um, one near the end of the page with the last yes on the left there that we're recommending is an adjustment for the current cyanuric acid limit of 90 parts per million to be exceeded up to 180 parts per million if you are able to demonstrate the ability to accurately test uh, such, a high, such a higher concentration in pools. This was a joint effort change request. It's been revised. It originally was to eliminate the 90. Now it's been revised to have the ability to go up to 180. Um, and that was jointly done with the experts as well. Any questions so far? Okay. So this next one is a little bit more complicated. Um, there is a closure CR that has been submitted that has four components to it. Um, those four components include the one part per million minimum DPDFC, regardless of cyanuric acid, which we've already talked about, but we're saying that should be operational as well as closure. Um, there is currently not a maximum cyanuric acid concentration for closure. We have proposed that that be 300. That's based off of the EPA swim model of 305 parts per million um, toxicity, uh, which has a built-in safety factor of 100. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, the other part that we recommend, that was recommended to change was uh, the fourth part, I should, I'm gonna skip to the fourth part, was, bless you, was spas have a minimum uh, three part per million DPDFC as opposed to FAC, um, basically FAC is equivalent to saying, we know we want higher minimum disinfection levels in spas and pools, but if you translate three parts per million FAC, um, at the lowest it can possibly go in terms of pH and temperature within a spa, you're talking about having basically roughly over a hundred, 104 times more hypochlorous acid in your spa for truly free chlorine FAC, um, as three parts per million than you would in a pool. I don't think we're saying we need 104 times more. So, but, so we're saying change that to DPDFC, but harmonize it with allowing cyanuric acid in spas, which makes sense. Because um, you already have a higher minimum disinfection. And that information can be found on the next YES CR, which says to eliminate the ban of cyanuric acid in spas. The third component of the closure CR at the top this is one CR that has four different criteria. So the last one is the third one I'm going to talk about. That is for a max ratio of 45 to 1. So if we're saying that you should have a max operational ratio of 50 to 1, certainly a lower ratio for closure doesn't make sense. Um, this proposal was kind of pushed through within the experts when they were discussing it. 
back when lower ratios um, were being looked at and there was no actual formal vote taken on this after all the other changes that were made. So they just didn't revisit this conversation and it needs to be revisited. Um, we're proposing because of the issue within the current model aquatic health code, this CR, because it's a package of four different criteria, does need to be adopted uh, because if you don't, then your max operational ratio will become a closure minimum disinfection requirement. So we would want to see this. We would want to say, yes, we should vote yes on this CR because it's a package, but we really need to change. And this is how you can make a difference by putting a comment in saying this 45 to one for closure needs to be changed to 150 to one. And more work needs to be done there to refine the efficacy requirements for closure as well. But certainly 150 to one would be the equivalent of having 300 parts per million of cyanuric acid and two parts per million DPDFC. We certainly don't wanna see us going up to probably 300 to one, that's likely too high. That's where the 150 to one comes from. Um, Ellen also submitted the next change request is Ellen's submission for a max closure ratio of 45 to one. Again, she submitted this CR. This is where you can vote for a closure of 45 to 1 without having to allow your pools to get up to 300 parts per million of cyanuric acid. Um, it's just kind of separating out the one criteria. Uh, we do not recommend that. Um, also, Segura submitted another, um, I'm sorry, John Kelly submitted another CR saying we need to eliminate the possibility of immediate correction as opposed to just closing the pool. So everybody has to close no matter what when you don't meet any of those requirements. Um, we talked about the next one for the elimination of the ban on cyanuric acid in spas. There's also a CR that's been, been submitted to ban cyanuric acid in indoor pools. This CR, um, I, I don't know who has submitted it, but it is... Um, not there's insufficient science that justifies um, any kind of need to ban um, cyanuric acid in indoor pools, and it doesn't really address uh, potential impact of cyanuric acid in indoor pools from windows, sunlight exposure. Um, so we do not recommend that one. There is a requirement, or there's another CR that's been submitted um, by Segura again that requires immediate correction or closure for any exceedance of cyanuric acid anywhere in the code. Um, very arbitrary and uh, not really justified with the science at this time. Um, and then there's another CR that Ellen submitted that says we should add theoretical peak occupancy to the closure section because it's already stated elsewhere in the code that you can close based on that exceedance. So it's just a matter of also including it in the relevant section. Any questions about this before I move on? Okay. And the last set of change requests that are related to, um, to cyanuric acid that have been submitted for the code are various. The first three are all related, two of which, by the way, have been submitted by Segura, but the first three are all about reducing the CYA limit of 90, the current limit of 90, down to 25, 40, or 60. Um, and we do not agree with any of these. And the last one is to add cyanuric acid effect to training information. And that does affect you all, but the information that they put in that change request is only talking about pools that have cyanuric acid concentration between one and 10 parts per million. 
there aren't any real pools that do that. So that's really not really relevant. And if they want to add cyanuric acid effect to training, they need to reconsider how they're putting together that information. It needs to include the ratio concept that you've heard us talking about. Um, and that's it. I think that's the end. Oh, okay. Not the end. So we reviewed and thrown a lot of information at you all. And I'm really grateful for you guys attending at the very, very late notice. Um, if it wasn't obvious from all these different changes that are extremely controversial that are out there right now on the table, um, they're, they're all going to impact all of us. And, and you guys are included in that and you should have a voice. So we were really looking for your help um, to have this balance with your voice included to talk about how these changes impact you all, what you guys see um, that could be incorporated to improving our aquatics industry and making sure that any changes that are proposed make sense, that they um, include the impact that you guys see and that they're, that they're adopted smoothly um, and that the right things get passed. So we're encouraging you to join the CMAC and get involved. And we, we you should really also consider providing feedback for PHTA standard 11 as well. Um, but we've thrown a lot of information at you. And we want to spend the rest of the time hearing from you all what you guys think. Jen, what was the cost again to join um, the CMAC? So CMAC membership costs varies depending on at what point in the cycle, the current cycle that you join. Um, right now, I believe the cost is $190 per individual. Um, starting, I believe, sometime next year, I believe, it will go back down and then you pay for that for three years. So if you join late in the cycle, which is right now because it's late in the cycle, then it costs more than if you join at the beginning of a three-year cycle. Um, so that three-year cycle will start over, I think, sometime next year. And then it'll cost less than that um, by a good margin. And it'll, it'll be a three-year membership. So I know um, this has been quite a bit of information. And for a lot of folks, um, you know, the first time they're hearing of some of it. And I think if we have a means, if not right now, that's fine. We can add it as a, as a comment later. A means for post uh, presentation feedback, um, an email, something along those lines. Um, I have got received a couple of messages stating um, that right now they're just trying to digest and we don't know exactly what to ask. We'd love to ask questions, but this is a lot. So um, if we can come up with something like that, like I said, it doesn't have to be right this second because I can always add it later on. Uh, but for an avenue for that, I think that everybody here would um, appreciate that. Although, if you do have a question right now, I don't want that to um, make you hesitate. I'd like to get that out there and, and give everybody a shot to answer it while we're all here live and in person as well. Um, so I think that's where we're at now in asking for additional questions. Same thing for those of you following along on Facebook. I can see those. So I am a little, I'm a little bit slower in getting to them, but if you guys post questions, if you're watching along live on Facebook, I can make sure that I, um, as we have done throughout this, get those asked. Um, again, the whole goal of this is to encourage participation. Uh, Jen, Roy and Tom um, were kind enough to bring their presentation 
to us um, and present the facts and give you guys an idea of, of what's going on. Um, we definitely would like um, ideas from you guys. You, you're, you know, you're the you're the missing link. Um, the folks in the field, uh, the intel that we don't have. Um, so that's where I'm at. I'm going to shut up now. If anybody wants to ask questions, please definitely do so. I don't know if any of the uh, rest of the three had anything they'd like to add to that. Rudy, I want to add one more thing. So part of the reason why this was scheduled at such late notice is because tomorrow is a very important day. Tomorrow marks the beginning of the triennial CMAC conference. Um, and so if you feel uh, moved by the information that we've shared with you today and you want to get involved, I'd strongly encourage it. Um, registration for the conference is free if you have a current CMAC membership. And we've already talked about that cost and how that works as well. So if you are currently a CMAC member or you want to join and become a CMAC member, you get to go to the conference for free. Registration is free. Um, and the reason why the conference is so important is because currently, uh, based on the, the policies of how the CMAC is being handled and um, how changes to the code can be impacted, is there, there is some sort of mechanism that allows conference feedback to be incorporated into the right path forward. So if you do join and you speak up at the conference and or you submit public comments, um, all of that can be taken into account and can impact the vote and impact these changes that are currently on the table that affect us all. So that's why I wanted to try and meet with you guys at such late notice. And I apologize. Uh, Rudy has talked to me about joining you all and getting in front of you all um, for many months. And I we should have done this sooner, but I'm glad we're here today and I'm glad we're having the conversation. So again, the CMAC conference starts this week. It's the rest of the week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we're going to be reviewing all these change requests. There's going to be um, there's going to be a public open forum as well during that schedule, and you'll get to hear a little bit more about some of these change requests from various TRC members. Um, and also, there'll be some caucuses, which is like subgroups that will be um, where we can have more conversation with our different categories of membership. So, now I'd like to open it for questions. And feedback. We want to hear your guys' thoughts. What do you guys think about all of this? You may not have a question, but you just have things you want to share. Most of you are muted right now. So if you do want to ask a question, make sure to unmute your mic and then just go for it. Oh, you lost your screen. I think we've got chat flashing at us, Rudy. Yep. Great to see you all. I have to leave. Oh, <laughs> Wendy's building a house. Congratulations, Wendy. Um, Adam, Hol Adam Holbrook, he is. Um, he's a CMAC member. He's encouraging folks to get out there and vote. Uh, scrolling along here. Let me pop over onto Rob.
I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening today. I'm hoping you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Listen, it's been a couple of wacky, crazy, screwed up years from pandemic to Poolmageddon. I just want you to know that we are all in this together. If there's anything that we can do for you, send me an email at talkingpools at gmail.com. Again, that's talkingpools at gmail.com. We're here. This is your podcast. We are the Pool People's Podcast of the Pool People for the Pool People by the Pool People's Podcast. This one is about you. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Do me a favor. Click subscribe before you go. That way you don't miss an episode. 